Well, I'm glad that you're here again, and we welcome you. This is our Wednesday night, <coughs> excuse me, service, and we're looking again at uh, Psalm 51. This is our part three. It's a wonderful and beautiful psalm. The circumstances are very sad. Uh, David has gone for about a year um, running, hiding. Um, you can kind of get the idea when you read his other psalms in correlation with this that life was pretty hard on David and pretty bad for him. He says, uh, I'll read the whole thing because we're going to finish it up in uh, this particular lesson. It says, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. That means remove it from the record book. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. That means like you would launder dirty clothes. And cleanse me from my sin. And he's wanting there not only to have his life clean, but actually to have the stain removed out of all of it. Verse 3, For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. In other words, whatever you choose to do to me, Lord, this is on me, not on you. You have the right to do anything that uh, you would so choose. He says in verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, or born with a sin nature, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness, that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Now, here's where we pick up for this lesson. <clears throat> do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, or capital punishment, O God. The God of my salvation and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God, this is really, really important, are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. And remember, especially in the Old Testament, the word despise means to overlook or to take lightly. In other words, a broken and contrite heart, that gets God's attention. He pays attention to that, focuses in on it. Do good <clears throat> in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem, and then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness. With burnt offering and whole burnt offering, then they shall <clears throat> offer bulls on your altar. Allergies are flaring up. It's that time of the year. Um, it's interesting that at one point when David speaks about his relationship with God, he said, if it were just a matter of offering a sacrifice, well, I would do it. And then he says that after we get right with God, 
then God seems to be pleased with the sacrifices. And I think sometimes we get the cart before the horse. Sometimes we think that maybe the works that we do, that's what God will really be pleased with. And it's not that God is anti-good works. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 tell us about salvation by grace through faith. And then in verse 10, it tells us that good works are to be the result of salvation. And I think that's what David is saying here. When it really comes down to it, slaughtering a bull or a goat or a lamb is not really the thing that makes a person right with God. It's a broken, contrite heart, a um, sense of repentance over sin and brokenness over the sin that we've committed expressed in the sacrifice. The sacrifice reminds us that blood has to be shed for the remission of sins and it has to be innocent blood shed on behalf of the guilty. And of course, you and I can put the puzzle pieces together and see that the sacrifices were just a foretelling or a picture of what Jesus, the Messiah, would do on the cross for us uh, a long time after David writes this. But if you get the cart before the horse, you would think that the sacrifices are what clean you up and you can live any way that you want as long as you offer a sacrifice. And I think this is what Solomon, David's son, tried to do. He would live an unwise, ungodly life, and instead of being repentant, he would try to make up for it by offering massive numbers of sacrifices. And we find from Psalm 51, God is not really after your sacrifice, so to speak, or your giving, or your money, or anything like that. He's after your heart. And whatever we do in expression of our worship to the Lord should be the result of being right with God and forgiven of sin instead of trying to make it the cause for God to forgive us. And I hope that makes sense because that, of course, is uh, very, very important. And that's kind of Christianity 101, isn't it? So when David writes about this in verse 11 and to the end of the chapter, we're going to look at the four things that he speaks of that are a result of being forgiven or being cleansed. David has had physical issues because of his sin and because of the stress and the anxiety of trying to keep it hidden. And we know now from modern medical science that so much of our illnesses and our problems have to do with just plain old stress. Now, can you imagine David trying to play the game for over a year, covering up, hiding, acting as though nothing is wrong, pretending as though he is right with God and uh, going through the motions on all of that, the stress must have been enormous. And David attributes that to the hand of God. In Psalm 32, he says, Day and night your hand was heavy upon me. He could feel it. This is the way God has wired us. We're made to have a conscience. Even lost people have a conscience. They have a sense of what's right and uh, what is wrong. Maybe not to the degree they ought to, and their conscience can also become seared. Paul said seared as with a hot iron. It's not as tender as it ought to be, but uh, it's there. And that's because we're all made in the image of God. Theologians call that the imago Dei, the image of God. And even the worst lost person you've ever known still is an image bearer, however marred it may be, they're an image bearer of God. And that's why human life is different than animal life. We love animals. I think we ought to treat animals 
um, kindly and all of that. I'm, I'm with people on that. But to say that their life is equivalent to our life would be biblically a huge mistake. We believe in the sanctity or the holiness or maybe the best way to put that is human life is set apart from and different from animal life. We read at the creation story that as God created all of the plant life and the animal life, he created Adam and then he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and he became a living soul. I guess we could technically say you don't have a soul, you are a soul. That's the real you. Your mind, will, emotions, it's who you are, lost or saved. And that is made in the image of God. Well, when David is living this life as a lie and as a cheat, as a fraud, as a murderer, all of these kind of things are bearing upon him because as an image bearer, he has a conscience. He knows what's right and he knows what's wrong. And no matter how big the smile he would put on his face, no matter how great the number of sacrifices might have been, no matter how loud he may have sung when he was at the tabernacle, no matter how eloquent his prayers may have been, all of it was fake and it was a put on and it was all external and it was killing him. It was killing him. And David tells us in this psalm that when it all boils down to what God is interested in, it's not the trappings of worship. It's not the externals of worship that bring the blessing of God. It's having a heart that's right with God. It's having a heart that breaks over our sin. It's having a heart that is correctable, that is teachable. It's having a heart that is in pursuit of God. After all, David had been characterized as a man who was after the heart of God. What was happening during this time? He was exactly the opposite of all of that, and it was killing him. And he can't get right with God until his heart good gets right with God. And there's the principle. You can come to church every time the doors are open and never know the joy of the Lord and the peace of a right relationship with God because it's all external. You can sing the songs, you can do the giving, you can say amen at the right places, but if your heart's not right, that's where it really actually starts or it ends. Some people think that coming to church, it's a gathering of the perfect, and yet you and I know we're not anywhere close to the perfection that God has commanded us. Be ye perfect as your Father in heaven also is perfect. Well, we come together knowing that we have failed and that we have failed miserably and that we're no better than anyone who is lost other than the grace of God through the Lord Jesus Christ. We have had our sins paid for. And that's why we ought to care about lost people. We ought to care about injustice in the world. We ought to care about all of the oppression and things like that that go on. We ought to care about immorality and uh, sex trafficking and pornography and all of those kind of things, all very important because Micah 6.8 tells us, He has shown thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee but to do justly and to love mercy and then to walk humbly with thy God. Well, David probably was putting on the masks of the first two things of Micah 6.8, but that last one of walking humbly with God, it had been a long time since he had done anything like that. Because to walk in sin and to cover it up 
It's to say I can handle it myself when you can't. It's to say that I can change my heart if I want to. And the truth is you may be able to change your actions, but you really can't change your heart. That's something that only God can do. And if you get the heart right, then the actions are going to be right. And you don't have to pretend, you don't have to cover up, and you can have a free relationship with the Lord. And that's what David is desiring, and that's what he is missing. Now, what are these four things that come when our sin is forgiven? Well, we're always, you've heard preachers harp on this for years and years and years, that we ought to be witnesses for Christ. We ought to be uh, trying to win souls to Jesus. We ought to be proclaimers of the gospel. Sometimes I look back in uh, my Christian upbringing and uh, church upbringing, and I wonder sometimes if the push by pastors for us to lead people to Christ was more so that the numbers would swell in the church more than it was out of concern for souls. That's horribly judgmental, and I recognize that, but I can't help but wonder sometimes when I look back. I remember reading a book by John MacArthur one time, and he told the story of a church, and the, uh, they wanted to push their members to go out into the community to witness for Christ and invite people to church. Certainly nothing wrong with that. But the way that they did it is church leaders went out into the community, and they were carrying uh, footballs, he said. And uh, they would knock on the door and they would say, look, some people from our church are going to be out in the neighborhood. If they knock on your door, would you give them this football? They'll win a prize for that. And so the people would say, yeah, I'll do it. And he talked about all of the numbers of people from that church that went out into the community canvassing, going door to door to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Or were they? Was it because they wanted the football so that they could carry it back and brag about what they had done and show evidence of it. And also, they were given door prizes for going out and witnessing. Now, maybe you've been a part of a church like that or you've heard of churches like that. What do you think the lost person that handed that football for the door prize to that person from the church? My thought would be, do you really care about me? Do you really believe in what you're doing or are you only doing it for the recognition and are you only doing it for the prize? There's a fine line in there, and I wonder sometimes if maybe we look at our society today and after all of the evangelism that took place in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and even into the 80s, what's the fruit of all of that? Well, apparently it's not real good. Our society has continued to decay and rot, and we look and we see that churches now have less influence on the government and on society and on people than at any time in my lifetime. So what's going on? Well, maybe we were doing the right thing for the wrong motives. And maybe as we were pushing for all of that, we were just people who were doing it in an external sense for the appearance of it and not really out of a heart for God. Maybe that's what David is talking about when he writes about these things. It's interesting after he talks about getting right with God, he says, do not cast me away from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Now, we know as New Testament believers, we have the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit, but David did not. That only happened after Acts 2 in the book of Pentecost. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come upon people, but it could also be removed from people. And David is terrified 
that he's going to go through the rest of his life, especially as the king of Israel, without the presence of God in his life, without the power of God in his life. Well, while the Holy Spirit will never leave us or forsake us, I will say this, it is possible for a New Testament believer to live with the presence of the Holy Spirit, but not walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, when I think about the power of the Holy Spirit, Acts chapter 1 verse 8 immediately comes to mind. And you, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, shall receive power and be witnesses to me. Remember that verse? And that was a paraphrase, of course. But the Holy Spirit brings his power and the power of God is to be a witness in a variety of situations. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Well, David is terrified about going through the rest of his reign as king of Israel without the power and the presence of God being manifest in his life. And he's pleading with God not to take that power from him. And what is going to be the result? Just like in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Have you ever seen anyone get saved and not be joy-filled? And what happens as a result of that? Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted unto you. And I'm just going to make the point here that witnessing flows from forgiveness. I have seen over the years any number of new believers, introverts, extroverts, influential people, people that you wouldn't notice if you saw them in a crowd. And when they get saved, they are so filled with the joy of the Lord and they can't wait to tell people what Jesus has done for them. Now, they may not do it well and they may not do it uh, accurately, but boy, do they ever do it with joy and with power and with zeal. There was a man when I was at uh, First Baptist Church of Chelsea, Oklahoma, that we had been praying for for three years. And he started coming to church, and uh, he would sit there in the invitation. And I mean, you've heard the old story about grabbing the pew until the knuckles are white. He literally would do that. And I remember it was on Mother's Day in 19, uh, I think it was 1989 or 90, and he came down to where I was in the invitation, and he said, Preacher, I'm ready. And uh, I got his brother, and his brother took him to the altar and led him to the Lord. It was a neat experience. And I was telling the church how Sammy and I had been praying for this man for three years. And I asked this guy's brother, Joe, how long have you been praying for him? And Joe Martin looked up at me with tears in his eyes, and he says, With God as my witness every day, for 42 years. Well, everybody was, of course, excited over that, and John Martin became a believer in Jesus Christ. Okay, fast forward. Evening service comes. I'm looking around for Joe. I'm looking around for Jeannie, and they walk in, and I see them, and that was normal. They came every time the doors are open. I thought maybe John and his wife, Elodine, might be with them, and they weren't. And I wondered, well, where's John? We had that dramatic thing this morning. Where is he tonight? My first thought was to sink a little bit. Oh, well, it's going to be another one of those deals where he prayed a prayer and everything's okay and now he's going to promptly drop out of church. About uh, 25 minutes into the service time, here comes John and Elodine. They walk into church and they sit down. He had never been on Sunday night before, by the way. 
And uh, after it was over, his wife came up and said, I'm sorry, Brother Greg, that we were late, but John was on the phone to his cousins in California telling them what Jesus had done for him today. Man, do you know what that did? It wasn't just that John came to church. It was that John had the joy of the Lord and he was a witness for Christ. John was not an expressive person. John was not the kind of person who was the life of the party. John was not the person who uh, was friends with everybody. He was kind of quiet and kind of reserved. And so this introvert got saved, and when his sins were forgiven, he was filled with joy, and the first thing he wanted to do was to be a witness for Christ. I just want to say, I think really the whole point in evangelism, our failure in evangelism, is probably because we've got unconfessed, hidden sin that we cherish, and we don't have the joy of the Lord or the power of God upon us, and therefore we're not witnesses for Christ. I think being a witness for Christ ought to be a normal, uh, shall we say, an organic part of our lives. That anywhere and everywhere, in every situation, we are unashamed and unafraid to stand up for Jesus, and that it is a natural thing because people see the hope, as Peter said, that is, with it, that is within us, and because of that, we have a chance to talk about Jesus like John did. But instead, we're content with saying, well, I must be saved. I'm here every time the doors are open. I must be saved. I'm a tither. I must be saved because I get involved in this ministry instead of saying I'm saved because my heart has been cleansed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and my sins have been forgiven and I can't wait to tell somebody about that in the joy and the power of the Lord. I think getting right with God solves the problem of being a witness. That's what David seems to be saying, doesn't he? Number two, notice that worship comes from forgiveness. He says, deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed. Again, I've already said that. He knew he was worthy of capital punishment under the law of God. And he says, when you do that, my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth shall show forth your praise. You see, when people get forgiven of their sin and their heart is right with God, they can't help but talk about it. And David here is talking about singing. Now, are you going to tell me that David, over this last year, never sang a psalm, never sang any of the hymns of Israel? I don't buy that. I think David is the king. I think he was still going regularly to worship in the tabernacle. I think he was regularly doing the rituals, Passover and all of those kind of things during this year, right there in the palace. But his heart wasn't in it. And there's a big difference between a person who just sings and they can't wait to get it over with and the person who says, I can never, ever contain my joy and my thankfulness for the Lord. I have to sing. How can I keep from singing your praise as one of the songs our choir does? And that's a good question. For those of us who have been redeemed and the God who created the universe loves us, sent his son for us, his son bore unspeakable agony on the cross for us and then conquered death, hell, and the grave and is in heaven today at the right hand of God the Father and he ever lives to make intercession for us. How in the world can we keep from singing? Well, sin will stop you from doing it. And I don't know of anything that will keep true and genuine worship 
from the heart from taking place, especially when we get together as a corporate body, which one of these days we will, will our hearts be right with God? Will we be pure and clean as David prayed for in this psalm? And will our mouths be opened because our hearts are full singing his praises? How do we worship? It's not just because we put something in a bulletin and gather together at a certain time and then do everything it says on there. It's not because we do rituals. It's not because we follow our traditions. It's because our hearts get right with God and forgiven people can't help but worship the God who forgave them. Problem solved. Get right with God. Problem solved. Get right with God and Brother Dale never has to beg anybody to sing in the choir. Get right with God and Brother Dale never has to say, let's all smile and let's sing. We can do better than that. It'll overflow out of our hearts. And what a difference it would be if God's people would gather in an auditorium on Sunday morning and there they would just overflow everything that God had been doing in their hearts during the week. Now that's exciting to think about and that's what David is talking about here. Thirdly, notice that wholeness comes from forgiveness. Now, when you get down to verse 16 and uh, 17, David is talking here about what God doesn't desire. Now, we've seen some things that God desires out of people, but here's what he doesn't desire. He doesn't want simply ritualistic, going through the motions, quote-unquote, sacrifice. You know, there are some people that think when they come to church, you know, I've given enough of my time and Sunday morning is just, eh, that's good enough. Why would God want anything else? I've given 10% of my money. Why would I ever give anything else? I've given some time to this person. Why should I do anything else? And we can get so caught up in the rituals of what we do and our heart, kind of the redounding theme in all of this, is not really in it. And we wonder why God doesn't bless us like maybe he blesses other people. Examine your heart. Because David said, if you, if you wanted a, a bull, if you wanted a sheep, I could give you that and I could give you more. I could give it over and over and over. You remember Solomon sacrificed a thousand. Well, David uh, had a lot of resources at his disposal. And yet he recognized that's not what God really wants. And he tells us in verse 17, the sacrifices of God. What does God want us to offer him? A broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. You know, it doesn't seem like much. A broken heart, a heart that will confess sin, a heart that's willing to repent, a heart that understands how offensive we have been to God and how we've broken his laws. We say, uh, why wouldn't God be more impressed by the big offerings that we give? I think it's Jesus sitting by the temple with all of the wealthy people giving their offerings. And then the widow put in her two mites. And that got Jesus' attention. I don't think that Jesus is as impressed with the things that we're impressed by. I think we get them mixed up and we think that if it impresses us, it must impress God. And the truth of the matter is it doesn't. His ways are not our ways. And so he looks upon the heart. Where is the heart? And the wholeness that we have in our relationship with God, what really brings our life together, body, soul, and spirit, is when our heart gets right with God, when we are offering the right kind of offering. And what would that be? A broken spirit. 
whenever you realize the depth of your sin and when you realize what it cost Jesus on the cross, how can you keep from being broken over that? How can you keep from having a contrite heart? I want to be right with God. I want to be right with a God who loved me that much. I want to honor what Jesus has done for me on the cross rather than trample on the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you do that, it's amazing how God begins to work in every area of your life. It changes your attitude. It changes your outlook. It changes the way you see other people. It starts working on you so that you calm down in areas where you need to calm down and you get fired up in areas where you need to be fired up. It changes your perspective. Instead of looking at people as a nuisance who were in your way or they're just stupid or they're whatever, you see them as lost and under the wrath of God and heading toward hell. In fact, you get to the point where you realize whatever trial we go through as believers on earth, this is the closest to hell we're ever going to get. That's not that bad, is it, when you compare the two? And for lost people, understand this. This is as close to heaven as they're ever going to get. We ought to have some compassion for that. We ought to look at the world, watch the news differently. We ought to go through crises like we're going through now with this coronavirus differently than the world does. Wholeness, wholeness comes from getting right with God. It's something that a psychiatrist can't give you. It's something that you can't find in a bottle. It's something that you can't get through medication. It's something that you cannot get anywhere else. But oh, when your heart is right with God, as the old song says, nothing between my soul and the Savior. Then the joy, the joy of the Lord returns. The peace of God that passes all understanding guards your heart and mind and you're in a different state of mind, wholeness through forgiveness and a right relationship with God. And number four, widespread impact. Had to have them all with W's, didn't we? Widespread impact comes from forgiveness. You see, the impact that we have does not become because we have got it all together and we've made it all right. If we were just a bunch of robots who never strayed, never did anything wrong, never messed up, never stumbled or fell, never had a scar, just automatrons, what good would we be? The fact of the matter is, even as believers, we've got some scars. I bet you've got some scars on your body that if I saw them, you could tell me the story. I've got some on my finger. Um, there's one right there on this index finger that uh, happened one time where I got the end of my finger cut off. There's a, another couple of scars on there where mishandled a hatchet, uh, those kind of things. Um, we've got those scars and we can tell you the story. I won't bore you with them, but there's a story. I can tell you the time, when it happened, what happened, what we did, and those kind of things. You've got those kind of stories too. Sometimes you may look at someone and say, uh, I notice you've got some scars on your face. I said that to a man one time, and he told me the story of being a paper boy. Remember those? In Redwood City, California. He was riding his bike. He had delivered his papers. It was still really, really early in the morning. It was still dark. He was riding past an apartment complex, and one of his friends was trying to fold papers, and he said, Jerry, come help me. And so uh, Jerry turned his bike to ride into the breezeway, and he didn't realize that there was a glass door. 
and he rode his bike right into the glass door, and uh, he ended up with over a hundred stitches in his face. He tells a funny story of lying on the couch and hearing his aunt come up and start crying and go, oh, he was such a handsome boy. Uh, it's kind of funny, but he could tell you the story about what happened. There were marks that told you that he wasn't very careful and rode his bike through a glass door, if you can imagine. Um, we have the scars of our failures. David had the scars of all of this. I mean, think about all of the rumors there must have been about his affair with Bathsheba. Now, he says, as a result of being forgiven, he says, do good to uh, do good in your good pleasure in Zion. That's Jerusalem. That's the Temple Mount. And build the walls of Jerusalem or the defenses of Jerusalem. And then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices. See, it wasn't that the sacrifices were wrong. It's that they were given for the wrong reason and with the wrong motive and given with a dirty heart. But when the heart is cleansed, all of a sudden, worship in Zion changes. The temple now has meaning. The rituals have meaning. People see that they are picturing sinful people who find redemption and love and grace and mercy through the sacrifice, the blood sacrifice of an innocent animal on behalf of the guilty, and they're looking ahead to the day when God would do that through his Messiah, as it's written of in Isaiah 53. He talks about build the walls of Jerusalem. There's something about a society where people, especially the leaders, honor God as to the society that doesn't. In the book of Proverbs, it says that uh, the righteous rejoice I mean, pardon me, the people rejoice when the righteous are in power, but they groan when the wicked rule. Well, David is writing about that here, saying that when he gets right with God, it changes everything. Not because he's been a perfect king, because he obviously hadn't, but because he is a forgiven king. And I think that when you do this, it changes everything. The worship that maybe you do, on Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, or your quiet time, or whatever you do, that doesn't seem to be bearing fruit, get right with God, and all of a sudden it has meaning. It's not that any of that is wrong. It's that it is done with the wrong motive, and it's done out of an impure heart. And David says that now that you get forgiven, then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering, that thing that God didn't really want before. Now it has meaning to the Lord and to the people that are offering it because they are forgiven people. And when you notice how it changes the worship in the temp uh, temple or the tabernacle at that time and how it also defends Jerusalem, if you want to have widespread impact, it's not because your life has been free of anything. It's because you have known the joy of being forgiven by God. Are the scars still there? Well, just like my friend that rode his bike through that door, all these years later, the scars are still there. But they're healed. And they make a great story. They are an interesting thing to talk about. And so will your scars be as well. No longer will they be the marks simply of shame, but they will be the marks of the testimony of a loving God who forgives sinners. You know, Jonathan Edwards in the Great Awakening preached a, a message called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And boy, a lot of people were converted because of that. 
Because it is true, a sinner in the hands of an angry God is in dire straits. But let that sinner trust Christ as Savior and Lord, to be cleansed by the blood of the Lamb, to have a new relationship with God, a new nature, uh, a new uh, standing before God. And now we have a different title of the sermon. How about this? A saved sinner in the hands of a loving God. And you have a God who wants you to be free, wants you to be pure. He wants you to be able to use your past and the mess-ups, the mistakes that you've made as a testimony to the grace and the power of a holy and forgiving God. And this is what David is saying. Will there be consequences to his sin? Yes, they'll be there for the rest of his life. But will there also be joy and testimony and freedom and forgiveness? Yes, because it's always, always right to seek the forgiveness of God. So whether it is in your witnessing, get right with God and you won't have any trouble witnessing. Whether it would be in terms of your worship and having true worship with God, get right with God and nobody will ever have to coax worship out of you again. To have wholeness that comes from God, yes, you get right with God and it will touch every part of your life and every relationship that you have. And then, fourthly, we said that if you really want to have widespread impact between now and death, get right with God and testify of the grace of God in spite of your great failures. The greater your failures, the greater God's mercy. The greater your sin might be, the greater the grace of God is. Grace that is greater than all our sin. So that concludes our time in Psalm 51, and I hope you look at it through new and through fresh eyes. We love you, we're praying for you, and we look forward to being able to meet together again. Remember to pray for our sick people. Remember to contact them, and remember to minister to one another and love one another because the church is really not a building. The church is people. We are the church. And while right now we may not be able to gather as we wish, we can still minister as God wills through the open doors that he provides. But the lesson out of Psalm 51 is do it with a clean heart. God bless you and thank you for your time.